From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. My Amiga Seamaster professional diver tells me that it's 8 Pip Emma at Vauxhall Cross. In the digital world of Liberty City, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the time over on eBay is, well, what's your opening bid? So, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Welcome to Litopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can. And don't hold back in the chat room. It's a mixed bag tonight as Charles Dickens' desk goes under the hammer at Christie's in London on Wednesday. The Observer's uh, literary editor, a pillar of the literary establishment, retires. And he tells us how our industry has changed in the last tumultuous decade. Uh, creative writing courses are deceptive, set up false expectations, and are the new mental hospitals, so says Hanif Qureshi. Also, new narrative, are expe- expectations of story structure changing because of uh, computer games? Two books out this week, both biographical. The subjects were employed by government and both are very revealing about their work. One worked for George W. Bush and the other probably still works for Her Majesty's Secret Intelligence Service, although we have no means of verifying that. And the big question this week is, how much am I worth? Here to help me answer that ticklish poser are from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Borman from England's West Country, writer and lecturer Dave Bartram from London, England, one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's prestigious National Academy of Writing, Richard Howes, and we're delighted to welcome back all the way from deepest Suffolk, UK, biographer Carolyn Sutar. So, Carolyn, one slightly fox literary agent, male, well-fed, mostly organic, veganic, in fact, house-trained, what's your best offer? Oh, uh, priceless. I priceless. think you get better by the, by the week. So, my opening bid would be a very good lunch. Very good lunch. Mm, yeah. Yes. I'm not sure. I get, I get too many damn good lunches. That's the problem with, with the publishing business. Richard, you got any advice on that? Um, I've, I've got a bar of um, sulfuric uh, soap here, some nice... Lovely smelling soap. Sulfuric soap, soap. carbolic yeah. soap, maybe. <laughs> Sulfuric soap, the sort that ripped all your skin off. Yes. Yeah, no, I can resist that, I think. Donna, what's, How what's about your two bit? cases of rosemary ale and a lifetime subscription uh. to Vegan Sexual Quarterly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you see, now we're talking. Yes, yes, uh, I'm getting quite excited about it. Dave, that's, um, that's, the, that's the best off you've got to beat. Oh, um, a nice cosy hobbit hole somewhere. Mm. <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> Male or female? <laughs> I think you could name your choices. I mean, talk to Rick's about that sort of thing. <laughs> That's his sideline. <laughs> right, OK. Well, I'm not as cheap as obviously everyone seems to think I am. Let's leave the auction open for the moment and we'll come back to it a little bit later on. I was chatting to a journalist um, the other day who covers the publishing business. Uh, like me, he's got one of the original Harry Potter proofs. In fact, he's got two. And also like me, he assumed that they would be worth absolutely gazillions an auction. I think they only produced a few hundred of them. Um, he got a nasty surprise when the most he could raise for both of them was £4,000. It's about $8,000. It's not a bad sum of money, of course, but it's not the fortune that uh, he had allowed himself, and indeed I had too, to, to daydream about. Charles Dickens' desk is up for auction this week, and so are John Lennon's lyrics. 
Uh, the market for signed first editions and indeed book proofs on eBay is absolutely huge. And I'm not talking about rare books here. I'm talking about contemporary newly published ones. Speculators are buying them, sometimes by the dozen, um, as the latest shrewd investment. And people would apparently buy anything associated with a celebrity in, uh, in London's Time Out this week. Caroline McGinn explores the weird world of the celebrity relic collector. And this is what she says. Um, she quotes... Stephanie Connell, who's Bonham's resident specialist in entertainment memorabilia. And uh, Stephanie says, touch is everything. She says the value is determined by an equation of the status of the person, the importance of the object, how it relates to their persona, and how it relates to the iconography and ideology of that period. So, with Marilyn Monroe, the most expensive things are the costumes. But with musicians, it could be the instrument they played or handwritten lyrics. Perhaps that explains, um, says Caroline, why Margaret Thatcher's handbag fetched £103,000 in an eBay charity auction. But even the less symbolic objects, says Caroline, pick up value by association. Um, she quotes Stephanie saying, George Harrison's T-shirts or old suits go for £600 to £800 rather than the £50 to £100, says Connell, that uh, one would normally expect with them. And we've got, she says, John Lennon's Honda Monkey motorbike coming up. It would normally fetch £2,000, but because it's his, it'll be £6,000 to £8,000. And then... Later in the piece, Caroline quotes from some research done at Sheffield Hallam University and Southern Illinois University. Uh, it's a study of 307 British people found that the lower their religious conviction, the more likely they were to revere a celebrity. So what's going on here? Um, Donna, have you ever bought any of this kind of stuff? Well, I'm crazy for auctions, and I love first editions. Um, I do like to collect my own signatures, but I've been known to pay. Um, it's a piece of history. The weirdest thing I have, though, is a piece of Abe Lincoln's hair from his assassination. Wow. What? Well, that's... You were there? <laughs> Where did the hair come from? Um, there's actually a guy that um, on eBay sells celebrity hair. That's extraordinary. How do you, I mean, there's got to be some kind of test there for, for provenance, hasn't there? Well, he actually provides um, like a copy of the, the um, certifications that he has for provenance. And um, I think mm. he's a pretty reputable guy. I actually gave mm. it to my husband, which, and, and he thought it was very weird and won't hang it on the wall. So Don't, don't yeah. leave it out for the cat. The cat might lick it and then... Well, you know, hey, if, if it's from his assassination, you can probably get DNA off of it, huh? Uh, Britney Spears used chewing gum, isn't this the uh, the the pits? Britney Spears used chewing gum, fetched fourteen thousand dollars on eBay. This is we're back in the medieval time, aren't we? Really, when people want to touch relics and objects that have some sort of perceived um, uh, spiritual value. <laughs> Don't. No, I'm sorry, Donna, stop me in my tracks. Yes, cloning Britney Spears. Well, she's pregnant again, allegedly, so really? we're nearly there. Well, isn't, isn't that a bizarre way? I mean, that, that's going to drive you completely crackers after a, uh, well, a few minutes, really, isn't it? When you realise a bit of chewing gum you spit out is worth $14,000. I always think there's that lovely moment in uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, where uh, the guy has the, um, the abbot turd in a little glass vial around his neck. And I think that's where we're going, isn't it? As you say, touch the relics. Donna says he's a very reputable guy and he's dealing in dead president's hair. <laughs> isn't that kind of oxymoronic to an extent? Is it any weirder than selling signatures? Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I guess... Yes, uh, yes, it is. Yeah. No, sorry, Donna, it is. 
It's a lot weirder. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the furthest, the furthest I, I ever went was buying a, a lot of crap relating to Star Wars and then going along to conventions and getting random actors to sign their toy, like Boba Fett and Chewbacca and R2-D2. Did you make money out of that? And now it's all sitting in a loft because I've, I've grown out of it. I, I don't think personally I'd ever do it again. I, I but we we all have this this belief that that, that thing sitting. In, I mean, you, you know, you've got that sitting up in the attic. I've got the um, uh, the Harry Potter proof, which is unsigned, unfortunately. If it was signed, I think it'd be worth quite a lot more. We've all got this fond fond theory, haven't we, that it's actually you know it's our retirement fund and it's going to be worth millions um, in years to come. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've got a hell of a lot up there that's uh, that's just accumulating dust, and you know, it's, it's everything from toys still sealed up to um, the video releases from ninety. Six, I think it was. They, they had the scripts in there, and I got mm. you know, several of the actors to sign it. And you know, I, I went a bit crazy with it all. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, I'd like to think that uh, in a few years' time it'll be worth a lot, and I'll sell it. But I probably won't. I'll just keep going. Oh, because I, I even collect my uh, cinema tickets. I've got cinema tickets going back to 1991, and they're all sitting on my desk, and I just keep adding to them, and I can't throw them out. Wow. It's like, what would happen if I threw them out? What's going to go wrong? <laughs> we've, we've got a psychiatrist coming on next week. <laughs> <laughs> we can keep them quite busy. Part two ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, my <laughs> husband thinks the hair well. is weird, but then he announced that he'd buy Buster from Mythbusters if it went up for auction. So I don't know if you've seen that show, but they blow up things and they kind of uh, demonstrate various uh, urban myths through scientific means. And Buster is the, the dummy they, they use. And he wants to buy Buster. I said, what would you do with Buster? He said, I don't know. Stick him in a closet somewhere. It'd be cool to have. So I don't think the hair is any weirder. We're back to myth and magic with these things. If you, um, if you go along to any sort of book signing these days um, you know and, and authors are uh, put out on, on the tour and have to go to 26 cities and sit behind a desk and sign thousands and thousands of books and hopefully what they will sell if you go to, along to any book signing you will see usually little old men um, in raincoats with lots of plastic bags waiting looking very dour not looking interested not really even even wanting to talk to the author but what, the, what they do is they buy up a dozen two dozen three dozen are the first edition that are signed, and then it gets straight onto eBay. Generally speaking, they don't even keep them. It's, it's onto eBay within 24 hours, and sometimes the prices just shoot sky high. I don't know. I wouldn't sell mine. I, I do wait. When we have the Miami Book Fair, I wait in those long lines and get them signed, but I, I wouldn't sell them. I have a book signed by Martin Luther King, obviously, that I didn't get in person, but I wouldn't sell it. I, I just think it's cool to have and to have a little piece of history. I always make the mistake of getting them to sign it to me. You know, I, so I, I could only sell it to ah. somebody called Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Like yeah, well, that's the thing. A lot of authors actually are getting wise to this now, and they are—they will only sign books to people to sp specify people. And I, I don't think it makes a lot of difference, really. But um, apparently, it does to the price. I was very upset. I was very upset to find that two of my signed books were only on eBay for five eighty-five. Yes, that's I mean, a problem. You know, <laughs> come on, it's not very fair, is it? They do spike, though. They do spike, you know, just um, a day or two after publication. You you might well have seen it on eBay for yeah, 50 quid, so 100 pounds or more. On, uh, like an Amazon uh, for 100 pounds, which I just don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand it. And it's the American copies which I didn't sign. So all very yeah. weird. And as for buying, spending all that money on somebody's chewing gum, 
And how do you know it's her chewing gum? I'm sorry to ask this question. I know. Well, it, yeah, well, it's important, doesn't it? Do is, uh, if, if you win the bid, you have to take it along to somebody's kister and ask them to chew on it and see if it tastes like her. <laughs> <laughs> it's the symbology with Britney Spears, isn't it? It's, it's chewing gum, somebody who's been chewed up and spat out by the media oh, as a product. Yeah, the, uh, the irony is, is not lost. Deep, yeah, there's a bit of irony there, I think. Yeah, it's a bit deep. We're going to get even deeper now. We're going to uh, look at the uh, the way the literary world has changed. Uh, the Observer's literary editor, Robert McCrum, pillar of the, the British literary, literary establishment. He stood down this month after 10 years in the job, and he did a very interesting um, sort of look back, actually. A bit of an elegiac piece, I thought. Um, it's quite long, um, and but, you know, it's, it's quite clear that he thinks the last uh, decade in publishing has been the most extraordinary time. He says, when I joined The Observer in 96, of course, and before that, in fact, he was... Um, uh, the uh, uh, head editor at uh, Faber. Uh, when I joined the Observer in '96, the world of books, he says, was in limbo between hot metal and co- cool word processing, but it would have been recognisable to many of our past contributors, from George Orwell and Cyril Connolly to Anthony Burgess and Clive James. Everything smelled, he said, of the lamp. It was a world of ink and paper, of cigarettes, coffee, and strong drink. Uh, the business end of books. This is quite revealing, actually. He says, The business end of books, W.H. Smith, Dillons and Waterstones was run by anonymous men in suits whose judgments were largely ignored. Trade was trade. Literature was another calling. The atmosphere was dingy, time-hallowed and faintly collegiate. Every October, we all got together in the Guildhall and gave a cheque to the novelist of the year. In 96, the winner of the Booker Prize was Last Orders by Graham Swift. Now, he says, that world is more or less extinct. Many of the great names from those times, Hughes, Murdoch, Mailer, Heller, Gunn, Miller, Vonnegut, are gone. Books, meanwhile, have been pushed to the edge of the radar. A series of small but significant insurrections has placed the language and habits of the market at the heart of every literary transaction. The world of books and writing has been turned inside out by the biggest revolution since William Caxton set up his printing shop in the precincts of Westminster Abbey. Um, A nicely English reference that most people talk about Gutenberg, of course. Heaven or hell, he asks. It's too soon to say. One thing is certain, he says, the appetite for print is growing. In 96, there were between 60 and 100,000 new titles in the UK each year. By 2007, it was pushing 200,000. The biggest annual output of any country in the Western world, turning over some £4 billion a year. And then he goes on, um, and I'll just try and quickly summarise, but, but they're all very interesting, actually. He goes to uh, goes on to sort of point out a number of milestones. And uh, the first one is New Blood. He picks on Zadie Smith as being um, the uh, first of the new wave of authors. Uh, worldwide sales of more than two million. White Teeth, one success. He says it was sustained by a new global market. Lots of other authors uh, followed in her footsteps. Um, Amazon, he picks on as the second milestone, of course. Uh, can't really leave it behind, actually. Amazon and Richard and Judy in the UK, equivalent really of um, Oprah. He says, um, Cactus, which is the company that produced Richard and Judy, Richard and Judy's book club, was influenced by the example of Oprah Winfrey in the US, but the um, managing director of Cactus says, we were doing something rather different. Oprah was sycophantic towards the author. We, and again, this is a terribly revealing quote, we didn't want to have the author anywhere near the studio. We wanted to have a proper chat about books. Isn't that a nice comment? We want to have a proper chat about books. Leave the author out. And we use celebrities because we didn't want to intimidate the viewer. Mm, smacks of being patronising, that sounds to me. Um, 
Third point is J.K. Rowling, obviously. Won't mention that any anymore. Fourth point, the corrections. Jonathan Franzen, who had laboured in near destitute obscurity throughout the night, his sport has published his lunch by refusing to allow the corrections. His sweeping account of a dysfunctional American family and the surprise literary bestseller of the stricken 9-11 season to be selected for Oprah's book club. He said... Um, he said, I see this book as my creation and I didn't want that logo of corporate ownership on it. He said, talking about Oprah, and he said, I feel like I'm solidly in the high art literary tradition. The Franzen episode illustrates the paradox, um, says Robert, of this decade, that the more golden the opportunities available to the book, the more marginal, even vulnerable, it has seemed to become. Point uh, five festivals, festivals are happening everywhere now. He says, literary festivals became the new rock and roll. Soon there's hardly a town in Britain that did not hold some kind of literary festival. Uh, the novelist had become a cross between a commercial traveller, rock musician and a jobbing preacher. Six milestone prizes. Book prizes, notably Orange Whitbread, rebranded as Costa and Samuel Johnson, now began to play a new and important role, one previously played by reviews. Next point was, yes, Ian McEwan. Um, the impact that Ian McEwan made. Even so, he says, in the new marketplace, literary fiction still had its limits. This was dramatically demonstrated when On Chesil Beach, together with the entire Booker Prize shortlist, was outsold by Crystal, a ghosted novel marketed under the brand name Katie Price, formerly the model Jordan. Last month, he says, another book by Katie Price appeared as a contender at the British Book Awards, producing a frisson of anxiety in some literary quarters, which we covered. Eighth point... Blogs versus reviewing. If you believe, as I do, says Robin McCrum, that Britain still sustains a vigorous and independent literary culture, look at America. The omens are not encouraging. American democratic instincts have transformed its literary landscape as surely as its colossal market has revolutionised book selling. Anyone can review books, he says, rather grandly, I think. And now in America, he says, everyone does. Um... The common reader, he goes on about, he says, my view is that the common reader generates more heat than light. On closer scrutiny, we find that this creature is fabled as the hippogriff is just as uncertain as everyone else. The equation of Amazon plus Microsoft has left the common reader dazed and confused. Ninth point, eats, shoots and leaves. Um, tenth point, inevitably, I think, the Kindle. So, Dave, what's he, what do you think is he, has, he, has he missed out? What other milestones have changed um, this whole business over the past decade or two mm, I, I think it's interesting he's completely missed out um film which he has. is rather yes. curious it is, um, which is a huge chunk you know in the same way that the television documentary has taken over from from kind of serious journalism in print in many ways i think um film has very much taken over much of the uh the you know the role of narrative in most people's lives now and i think that's a huge um a huge uh thing to miss out really because yeah. most people get their narrative from the, the visual medium i think and there is we, we've talked about it in the past this difference between um uh you know the kind of the intimate experience of a book and, and seeing things um uh, on the screen and so forth, and I think that's um, that's the key thing. You know, much of the audience, because it's quite funny. He's talking about high, you know, talking about high literary values and kind of yes. lowbrow. Yes. It all goes back to the same thing. At the end of the day, people like narrative because it tells them something about themselves. Yeah, and. Yeah. That's what it does. It doesn't matter whether it's literary fiction or science fiction or children's fiction. It's telling us something about ourselves, and hopefully we're going to learn something from it. Yeah. And to make these distinctions is a little bit facile at best. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know who's doing the heavy breathing, but it really is having quite a strong effect on me. <laughs> you see, we're now paranoid. It's difficult to, difficult to concentrate on Dave just then. Well, actually, I find him strangely attractive. Uh, well, at least you had an excuse for not being able to concentrate on me. My students have no excuse whatsoever. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I got. I, I just thought. I thought this was a fascinating um, piece, a very long piece. You know, obviously not done a particularly good job, really, at trying to summarise it because he, he mentions all kinds of other points. I haven't. He's talking about the iPod moment. That's the buzzword at the moment in in publishing terms. Do you think we've actually reached the iPod moment, Richard? Uh, yeah. I, I, well, I think we're we're in the throes of it at the moment. I mean, um, my brother-in-law just just bought a, a new uh, surround sound home cinema kit, yeah. which he plugs his iPod into, and and that allows him to watch his uh, videos that he can now download, his music videos on the TV. So he's got his own music channel uh, at home. Um, he, he doesn't use it for, uh, you know, talking books, but I, I do know a, a lot more people who are listening to a, a lot more talking books. I've, I've got a friend who's doing the, the whole Simon Sharma series. And right. And such, such like, you know, the uh, Septidile and, uh, and whatnot. So yeah, I, I think we we are seeing a trend towards more of the uh, the talking books over, over just reading. Yeah. Um, five authors, the internet, book festivals, prizes, and a gadget. That's really his summation of things. Uh, does that ring, ring a bell to you at all, Donna? Well, I, I like the um, literary festivals in particular, and I'm I'm glad that we're seeing more of them. One thing I think he left out though is graphic novels. We're seeing yeah. a lot more of. Yeah, them. Good point. There's a whole section in my bookstore now, and I, I think it's a, a major aspect of the market that's really growing fast. Mm. I've I've seen a, a lot of new. Uh, well, they're not new. They're um, they're manga style. Um, written uh, originally in Japanese that are coming into the library. They're, they're shaped exactly like a novel, but they are graphic novels, and they're written from back to front uh, for, for the uh, young adult market. Yeah, most of the graphic novels I see are written back to front, I think, because they're more for the manga um, crowd. But um, it's really interesting, and, and you're seeing more for girls now, too. Um, they used to be more for boys, but uh, and you're seeing uh, some that are actually for adults. So, Carol, um, what, what I take um, Robert McCrum's piece to really mean, although I'm reading between the lines a bit, is that the old-fashioned literary establishment, the thing that he you know, says smelled of the lamp, it was a world of ink and paper, of cigarettes, coffee and strong drink, had nothing to do with, um, you know, trade, which he faintly disparages, I think. Um, I mean, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing, that the literary establishment is fragmenting? Um, I think it's a bad thing. It's interesting that he covers such a broad spectrum of, of things, and I, I was really disappointed with it. I did read it the other day in The Guardian because I, I actually think he's an extremely intelligent man. Mm. And one of the things that he's uh, beefed about over the years are reviews. And there's specifically one um, that a Russian historian had. Uh, it was Orlando Fijes mm. with his review. Of the, a review, he got absolutely taken to pieces in the Times Literary Supplement. And uh, Bernard McCrum came back and said, Fijes did a response to the TLS because it was just yeah. appalling what had been said. And I expected more of McCrum. I expected more 
insight. I mean, yes, I do believe that it's it's this business of, you know, you don't get involved with trade and uh, it's all done rather nicely. Um, I think it had to move on. I, I remember one of the conversations we first had was that how publishers ever make money is, is a little bit of a mystery because it's uh, it's not really run as a high-flown industry. They don't seem to... It seems to be so dis, um, dispersed. They yeah. have so many people with so yeah. many lists yeah. trying to hit so much of the audience that maybe it is a time where they're going to start looking at um, the ebook, but you know, whatever form the ebook takes, um, it you know, I'm just going to be one of those dyed in the walls. It's not for me. If I listen to an audio book, I fall asleep. Just have to say, Jezebel, Jezebel in the chat room says, My son keeps calling Peter daddy, which is very worrying. <laughs> <laughs> it's your voice, <laughs> it's nothing else. Um, yeah. What do you want to tell us about before your birthday tomorrow? <laughs> they do say confession is, is good for the soul. No, I'm going to keep my soul exactly the way it is. Um, dark heart of the literary agent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got very mixed feelings about the, the you know, the, the sort of fracturing of the literary establishment. I mean, I think what you were just talking about is absolutely right. There were kinds of, you know, feuds going on there and who's in and who's not mm. in, very small, very sort of small-minded. Um, the other side of the coin, it kept standards high. And the thing that I think, I'm, I'm amazed actually, the one thing that he hasn't included here, because I think he's included one or two fairly trivial things, but the one thing um, that he hasn't included, and actually he's, he probably hasn't included it because it didn't happen in the last decade, although its effects have been felt in the last decade, is the abolition of the netbook agreement. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and um, I don't know, I think in France, actually, they are just going through this this particular upheaval. And I remember thinking at the time, this was this was um, basically resale price maintenance, saying that everyone had to charge the same prices for books. The publishers could print the price on the book, the publisher was responsible for pricing the book, and then book, bookshops would sell the book at that price and none other. Um, and at the time, I thought, you know, um, well, you know, why not have some competition in, in the book market? And of course, it, it did go the way of the dinosaur, as it probably will have to do in France. But, you know, what are we left with? We're left with, with Katie Price. Well, that, that's, yes, that's, that's dreadful. That, that's part of the, you know, what's so good about the changes. Are, I, I don't think people like Sadie Smith would have got published under, under the old regimes, you know, but yeah. she's been able to project herself really well and what she's working on her fourth novel now isn't she but the the flip side is that you need to have a picture perfect face and some kind of celebrity credentials if you can call it that mm. um uh, to, to sell yourself yeah. i mean you know katie price and um russell brand are, are the big sellers yeah you know it, it's it's not the person who sits in the dark room and you know really worries over their manuscript who, who seems to get anywhere now i was uh, just reading the uh, the book by marcus suzak as part of lytopia's book club yeah. and uh, you know it, it's a good book um but i i, I don't think poor old marcus is going to grab me for for an, uh, another book he, he doesn't seem to have uh, any branding to him at all no mm. way for me to get back into to anything else that he writes so i'm just going to move on whereas sadie smith uh her, just her name speaks for her now, doesn't it? What about the power of the reviewer? I mean, Robert um, obviously has a sort of vested interest there, being the former literary editor, um, and he, you know, he sort of does seem to bitterly regret the fact that the the reviewer um, is in serious decline. I, I mean, he seems to set. Well, he does actually set the reviewer 
the professional literary viewer, um, in one corner, and the blogger, of course, anyone can start a blog, and frequently they, they do, um, in, in the other. I mean, I don't think that's entirely fair, actually. Um, what do you think, Donna? Well, I think that um, I like reviews, and uh, I read uh, Chauncey Mabe from our own Sun Sentinel all the time. It's good to hear his take, but I do like the democratization of reviews, too. Um, he uh, mentioned our, um, uh, he mentioned Vulpus Libris, the uh, book foxes, oh, and yes. uh, since one of our own members is is one of them, I'm in favor of them. But I, I like to hear a lot of opinions on books, so I, I think we need both, and I think there's room for both. There's a power thing, though, isn't it? I mean, in, in years gone by, a good review would make the book, a bad review would break it, just like Broadway. It ain't the case anymore. No, no, but the, you do have the, uh, the polarization of places like Baltus Libras, who are giving you a... a still a professional edge to their uh, their reviews then you've got the old facebook your friend has reviewed this book that you you want to read and you go and you see oh what do they think of it oh yeah this book was great i loved it yeah. you know that's all you get so you know that there is still a place for proper reviewing whether people get paid for that i don't know a lot of a lot of this is i think somebody's missed the point here a, a bit I'm just thinking about this whole celebrity thing and, and book sales and that sort of stuff. Do you really do we really think that the same people are buying Russell Brand and Katie Price who are buying Zadie Smith and um, Annie Prue and people like that? I mean, I would doubt I would doubt it very much. You could possibly suggest that the massive increase in public in, in publishing and the selling of books isn't that these things have replaced those things on the shelf but have augmented the book market so I would imagine we're probably seeing similar amounts of literary fiction and science fiction and all these things being sold alongside all these diabolical celebrity tomes so I don't think we're actually comparing like for like yeah, are very we? Good point. Very different markets, yeah very good point what about this quote here that, um, that I've read before where from um, the uh, person who runs uh, Cactus, who were doing the, well, sort of do, of course, Richard and Judy, although they've moved to uh, Satellite Channel now. Uh, we didn't want to have the author anywhere near the studio. We wanted to have a proper chat about books. And we used celebrities because we didn't want to intimidate the viewer. What, what, Carolyn, what does that uh, speak of to you? Oh, it's desperate, isn't it? Um, I remember, um, it's just horrendous. I mean, it, it's lower, lowest common denominator. It's actually very insulting. It assumes that an author can't actually be a human being and sit there and talk about their book and join in. It makes them sound as if we are the people who live in a little black room and only come out once a, you know, once a month. It, it's just it's so wrong. It's an extraordinary thing to say. And it's so bad, mar- such bad marketing. And, and surely readers, I mean, I occasionally see uh, Terry Pratchett around and about, um, on all the programs nowadays because he's come popping up on Alzheimer's and everything and, and good for him. And I know he does a lot of events uh, in Cambridge and who would not have Terry Pratchett on a show? Yeah, exactly. So what authors yeah. are you thinking about? Um, maybe, and I don't know this, that it's because they don't want Jordan because Jordan would say, actually, I don't write them. Would she? I don't know. Maybe she is the writer behind well, people Angel would watch, and wouldn't they? Just... I, I don't, sorry, Peter. I, I don't understand a remark like that. It's glib. It's unnecessary. It's demeaning. And quite frankly, it puts the show into a totally different perspective. And whilst I'd be gagging to have any of my books on it, having read that... I'd probably say no. I'll yeah. pass. Thank you. It's, it's fascinating. I, I mean, yeah, there. yeah. I mean, I, th- I think Dave, Dave's um, you know, put his um, his finger on it really. Because on the one hand, 
This is why I think his, his piece was so interesting, actually. We must move on at the moment, but he, he does raise so many interesting things. I mean, on the one hand, you've got um, incredibly sort of snobbish comments from Jonathan Franzen, who wouldn't, you know, go near Oprah because he sees himself as high art literary. And on the other hand, you've got Cactus Television basically treating the audience as if they're idiots. Quite, quite extraordinary yeah. uh, sort of diversity now. Yeah, complete juxtaposition. I, and it, it's, you know, I've, I've always believed, and I think probably most of us on here is that, you know, especially the people on Litopia and people listening to this, we've got a wide spectrum of interests. You go into a library or a bookshop and you can't be distracted by anything. Mm. You know, whether it's, whether it's Jordan or Franson or whoever, and you think, oh, I might read that. And it would not put me off having listened to the author, unless they were going to bore for the universe on the subject. But you'd still say, "Oh, that's interesting." Yeah. I wonder well, who they are. I, I agree. I mean, you know, I, I, British television does have this amazingly sort of patronising approach when it when it sort of puts books and authors on television. I mean, Sky do this, don't they? They've got the the book show. I don't know if anybody actually watches it. But it's, no, it's, it's, no, I mean, it's almost as if, you know, we, the, the book and the author is not sufficiently interesting. We have to dumb it down. We've got to stack it up. Otherwise, people won't watch. Can I dare to, dare to disagree with people for a second? Why, I, do I like don't, uh, no, I don't have it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the, the devil's own sputum. Um, but are you wearing trousers, though? <laughs> but uh, no, um, I, I was thinking about this, this, this not wanting to be the I don't know what their motives are, but I think... We've got to remember that, especially when reading fiction, people like to make a fiction their own and they suspend disbelief to, to make it real for themselves. If you actually put the person who wrote it banging on about how they did it and how long it took and how hard it was and so on, it actually blows that suspension of disbelief out of the water and it just becomes something somebody made rather than something somebody's internalised and made their very own. Or is, is that twaddle? But I, I think there's... It's a bit more complex than just not wanting to talk to authors. I think it actually stops some people enjoying the book in the way they would normally do so. Oh, now, that's interesting. See, I hadn't thought of that, but you, you are right, because if you have come up with the humdinger and everyone's read it, and you've written about a 25-year-old, let's say, who's had a fantastic time, and they meet grey-haired me, sort of, and they'll say, well, uh, oh, dear, that's a bit sad. I mean, maybe that is the point. Maybe, maybe it is the point. No, I, I think it's just control. Uh, Richard and Judy want want to be the ones to help you sell your book into billions. Whereas if you were there, then it wouldn't be uh, them having the control over it. Well, whatever. Yeah. We we um, we uh, we should move on, really. But we we do like Robert McCrum because he likes Vulpes Libras, and we like Vulpes Libras too. Um, if I could pronounce it properly. Um, Hay Festival has, uh, has been happening, and um, all kinds of people have been getting together there. The Guardian reports that the celebrated novelist, screenwriter and playwright, Hanif Qureshi, has launched a withering attack on university creative writing courses, calling them the new mental hospitals, Qureshi said. One of the things you notice is that when you switch on the television and a student has gone mad with a machine gun on a campus in America, it's always a writing student. The writing courses, particularly when they have the word creative in them, are the new mental hospitals. But the people are very nice, he says. <laughs> going to come to you in a minute, Richard. <laughs> he said that he was impelled to start teaching writing by the example of his children, who have tennis lessons, piano lessons and the like. He became convinced that teaching a skill was an honourable calling. I felt if I knew something, I should pass it on, he said. But he said of his students, when I teach them, they're always better at the end and more unhappy. 
He said that creative writing courses set up false expectations among students that a literary career will inevitably follow. The fantasy, he says, is that all students will become successful writers and no one will disabuse them of that. When you use the word creative and the word course, there is something deceptive about it. Um, Faye Weldon also um, had, came in on the act. She wasn't terribly um, controversial. She just said, I, I do, do a bit of teaching. I try to uh, teach them the fewer, fewer adjectives and the fewer adverbs, the better. You're just doing the world a favour, she said, much like Stephen King, actually. That's Stephen King's philosophy. Um, and when Qureshi gives a, um, a mark for the course, he says, I always give people the same mark, 71%. And then you write these reports. I always say they were well-behaved, well-dressed. Uh, then they write me these nice letters saying, I never expected I'd get so much. But how can you mark creative writing, he says. Um, so, Richard, National Academy of Writing, you go there, don't you? I do. Uh, yeah. Is uh, it a mental I, I hospital? I, I, is, it, well, is it a mental I, hospital for people who have been deceived? Yeah, certainly uh, <laughs> when they're you know getting us all in for the uh, the first module to see if any of us can actually write properly. Uh, you have all sorts of characters with all sorts of hang-ups, uh, and you know they they try to weed those out um, as you go along. But you know you, you do see a, a lot of people who seem to be writing their their own personal story. You know some issue that they're trying to get through, and and they think that. If, if they write it into a novel and sell it, then that's going to change their life. Um, but the, um, the, the masterclasses we've had, we, we have had a, a couple, couple of uh, authors who have kind of had polarised thoughts on the whole issue of, um, you know, false hopes and such like. One came in and, and, and gave us a, a very um, positive kind of talk on how he got into writing through um, media and, and and how the opportunities are there for everyone and you know he really does think that every, every one of the 20 of us can get published and then um, we had uh, Jim Crace, a uh, local Birmingham author and his was a rather sobering yeah, mostly negative um, but really it was just just to get us to see that you know we're not all going to get published just because we've been on the course and you know just because we think we can write doesn't mean shit uh, you know so uh, yeah I, I can see that that what uh, Hanif was saying about the machine guns and I'm sure if you put people like Hemingway on, onto a writing course he'd go off and kill a few people <laughs> you know if you try to force him to, to write to a strict regime of all oh, you've got to do this and you need a three act structure <laughs> Um, what, what about his remark then, Donna, um, about um, the impossibility of uh, judging creative writing? We've got Jack Scamp in the chat room. He says, I, I expect creative writing can't be taught, but it certainly can be judged. Agree or disagree? It, it is subjective. We're going through this now. My nine-year-old just took a, a standardized test on creative writing and She's actually bitter at, at age nine about the subjectivity of her grade. Um, obviously didn't do as well as she thought she was going to. Well, I, I, um, I, I, I think... I think it's hard to um, judge creative writing. I, I, the classes I've always preferred on writing were the ungraded ones. I, I've taken a couple of workshops and really enjoyed them. I took a class in college that was graded and I didn't enjoy it at all because it's too much pressure and, and it's, it is so subjective. Do, does anybody ever say you aren't any good on a creative writing course? No. 
not in my experience. You, you get a, a lot of um, constructive criticism about the way you've approached it, but um, certainly the people who who aren't any good, no one's ever actually telling them, you know, you can't write, maybe you shouldn't bother. Which is possibly a bad thing because then they're wasting their times and, and uh, a lot of uh, learning to write is the epiphanies where you realize, oh, so that's how I approach the, the movement from dialogue to action and kind of intertwine that with the description of this person in the light and link, link that with the theme. You know, uh, uh, people learning to write, they're, they're just not picking up those those clues and it's those clues that help really infuse their writing with something interesting and different uh, and uh, you know that, that that is what I think should be taught in writing courses and isn't I think uh, yeah I mean I, I can see his point really there's there's a sort of an assembly line mentality and I suspect that actually my uh, my fellow brothers and sisters of literary agents are a little bit responsible because you know once um, somebody comes off a creating writing writing course and, and, and gets a great book deal then all the agents descend like vultures and um, try to uh, do deals with all, <clears throat> all the various blossoming courses and the expectations are raised and there's a sort of an assembly line process that, that goes into motion there, um, which I think ultimately probably just damages authors, actually. Well, I think the best part about creative writing classes and, and courses is it forces you to write and write and write. And that's really the only way to learn to write is to write a bunch of crap and then start getting better. I think there's a, um, as, as speaking as a professional educator for a moment, uh, um, I, I had a bit of an epiphany about what it is about writing, what works and doesn't the other day. For years, I've labored under the, under the misapprehension, I'm sure many of us done, that um, it's about style. And you can teach yep. the elements of style and you can teach the techniques in the same way you can teach people to draw or ride a bike or change a tyre and so forth. But it's not about style at all. It's about substance and fitting whatever you need to use to the substance you've got to get across. You can teach endlessly the tools, the, the technical know-how. What you can't teach is the substance. Either somebody has the substance of something they want to get across or they haven't. I mean, the you know the end of that is these kind of mechanically put together kind of assembled novels that are any old claptrap that do sell quite well but they're not really particularly good writing are they good writing is something where somebody has something of substance they want to put across and they fit the style to, to make it work the style can be taught endlessly but the substance can't I, I don't know that I agree with that because I, I think plotting and some of the basic basics of substance you can teach. Um, I think what is very hard to teach is voice, and I think that's the kind of thing that you learn from writing over and over again until you start to develop your own voice. But if you, you can have you can have all that stuff till the cows come home, but if you actually haven't got an idea to put across, it's kind of a waste of time, isn't it? You've been reading my manu manuscripts, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Endlessly. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. <laughs> but I, I think you're right, Dave, because Peter asked me a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, my question that he posed to me was, what's what's more difficult, uh, the, the proposal or the writing, the idea or the writing? And I'd always say the idea. Um, just just seeing very nicely um, into the next subject from that. Next subject really is about narrative, story itself. A very, very uh, interesting but um, extremely long piece in Prospect magazine um, this week by Tom Chatfield, who's the assistant editor 
I'll just, just read you the first paragraph. Uh, Mogwai, he says, M-O-G-W-A-I. Mogwai, it's the name of a person, the pseudonym. Mogwai is cutting down the time he spends playing World of Warcraft. 20 hours a week or, or less now, compared to a peak of over 70. It's not that he's lost interest, just that he no longer working his way up the greasy pole. He's got to the top. He heads his own guild, has 20,000 gold pieces in the bank and wields the twin blades of Azinoth, weapons so powerful and difficult to acquire that other players often, virtually, follow Mogwai around just to look at them. In his own words, he's e-famous. He was recently offered $8,000 for his Warcraft account, a sum he only briefly considered accepting. Given that he's uh, clocked up over 4,500 hours of play, the prospective buyers were hardly making it worth his while. Plus, more sentiment sentimentally, he feels his character is not his alone to sell. Uh, quote, Mogwai says, The strange thing about this character is that he doesn't just belong to me. Every item he has... He got through the hard work of 20 or more other people. Selling him would be a slap in their faces. Um, and he reveals that Mogwai actually is a... He, in, in his um, real life, if he has much time for it, works as a civil servant for the British government modelling crisis scenarios of hypothetical veterinary disease outbreaks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, There's a touch of the Ian McKeans about this. Um... If you, uh, he says, how then does he explain his willingness to invest so much in something that has little value for his career? He disputes this claim, quote, in Warcraft, I've developed confidence, a lack of fear about entering difficult situations. I've enhanced my presentation skills and debating. Then there are more subtle things, judging people's intentions from conversations, learning to tell people what they want to hear. Must be a good skill for a civil servant, that. I'm certainly more manipulative, more Machiavellian. I love being in charge of a group of people, leading them to succeed in a task, he says. And then... Uh, Tom Chatfield, okay, yeah, he goes on to, to, just to put this in some sort of financial context, which is very interesting, just talk about the UK, 2007 was a record-breaking year with sales of interactive entertainment software, as it's called, totaling 1.7 billion. If you want to convert that into dollars, you just double it, really. 26% more than in 2006. In contrast, it says British box office takings for the entire film industry were just 904 million, uh, an increase of a mere 8% on the previous year, while DVD and video sales stood at 2.2 billion, just 0.5% up on 2006. And physical music sales fell, of course, from 1.8 billion to 1.4 billion. So they actually fell below the um, the interactive entertainment software amount. At this rate, he says, game software, currently our second most valuable retail entertainment market, will become Britain's most valuable by 2011. Even books, the British consumer book market, was worth $2.4 in 2006, may not stay ahead forever. So this is to all very... Fair, though, Say again? To be, to be fair, though, um, when you buy a video game, it costs you roughly 50 quid, <laughs> whereas a DVD, it's something like 12 to 18 pounds and a cd now is like eight pounds yes yeah that's right well rich i mean um are you a gamer I, I used to be. Uh, certainly during my schooling, I, I found a lot of games to waste my time. Um, SimCity, uh, back in the original. Uh, and when I got a Mega Drive, I was really stuck into a game called Echo the Dolphin, which was kind of like a, a strategy yeah. dolphin under the water. I remember that. Um, and and that, that kind of ruined my schooling for a couple of years there. But you learned a lot uh, about dolphins there. I learned a lot about dolphins who were able to shoot sharks with their sonar beam and kill them, yeah. which I don't think really does happen in real life. But I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to go and find my encyclopedia. <laughs> um, but, 
again, when the Grand Theft Auto series came out, I, I got quite heavily into that on my PS2. Um, and again, it, it, it kind of ruined my life for anything else. But I, I do believe that they, they have narrative, uh, a good narrative structure, because all the, all the levels and all the missions, are, you know, they have their setup. You, you, you do the mission, and then you have your outcome of, of that. Okay, and so I, I do, 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 wait, wait, let me stop you. What narrative structure? How does that compare to conventional narrative structure that most writers will be familiar with? Well, just beginning, middle, and end, really. I mean, it, it's not... So is it, I mean, are you saying it's actually the, it's, it's pretty much the same? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to class the whole game as equal to a novel, but, you know, it's made up of little chunks of stories, isn't it, to do this? To do, I mean, with, with the guy with his World of Warcraft who's saying, well, you know, I couldn't just sell it because, of, you know, I, I've got this sword by fighting whatever and doing that you know they're little mini stories that build up to the whole and you know help to fashion out this world for him yeah um, so i think i think it, it does hark back to you know what a lot of people complain about computer games that you know it's like bite-sized narratives rather than you know really invested weight of a novel uh, so to speak but you know it, it is still a narrative mm. it's some and some though isn't it you know, some of them have very, very interesting linear narratives and some of them don't. And also the other thing with, with computer games is value for money. If you think about the number of hours somebody gets out of a, a computer game Good compared point. to a DVD, yeah. they're probably getting much more bang for their buck, particularly if it's an online one where they just pay, you know, so much a month or something. Stunt, but, stunt, stunt minds and sparks addictions, do they? Um, I Probably, but they probably also encourage people I mean this guy with his enhanced presentation skills he probably goes into the boardroom wearing a big old helmet with a to hell with the flip chart and powerpoint <laughs> don't agree with me I'll get me guild to come and assassinate you or whatever he does <laughs> no. uh, that, that, that's an interesting point because there's a there's a documentary movie coming out this year uh, it's definitely in America I'm not sure if it's over here it's it's about um people who play World of Warcraft in real life and they go to a camp like that lasts for three days and none of them are allowed to sleep and they're all dressed up and there's one scene in which a, there's a poor girl in a in a wheelchair you know who's pretending to be a mage of some kind unfortunately she can't get very far because it's all hilly um, but you know it's it's more you know now that they can uh, communicate uh, over the net, and they can play their games with lots of people around the world. Hmm. Um, it's it's more about sharing the, the narratives and, and just sitting down to a, a book on your own, and it's it's developing together. Yes, I, th I think it's, you know, it's obviously the jury is still out basically on the effect of uh, computer games and whether they make a more violent society and um, how easy or difficult it is to to write for computer games. There's so many issues here. Uh, let me just um, very briefly put a plug in for Litopia Daily which will be happening um, as of Monday the 9th of June. It's a, it's a week on Monday. Only five, six, seven minutes every day. But we do want, we do want lots and lots of contributions, please, from, from, our, from our listeners. So if you've got any views on anything that you've heard in this podcast, uh, violently agree, violently disagree, we want them. And preferably, if you can record them and send them to us, it's dead easy to send them to us. Um, it's never been so easy. All you have to do is go to our podcast website, which is podcast.litopia.com, there's no www, uh, and read the instructions. And you can drop off a file, and you, quick as uh, Bob's your uncle will be, in Latopia Daily the very next day. We'd like to sort of continue the debate that we're, we're starting in Latopia After Dark 
during the week on Latopia Daily. And if you want to um, just listen to the uh, promotional trailer at the end of the show, it'll give you more details of how you can contribute. Um, two big books out this week. Um, one stateside, one in the UK. Um, stateside is called What Happened? Inside the Bush White House and Washington's Culture of Deception by Scott McClellan. I've got the publisher's press release here. It says uh, Scott McClellan, McClellan was one of a few Bush loyalists from Texas who became part of his inner circle of trusted advisors and remained so during one of the most challenging and contentious periods of recent history. Drawn to Bush by his commitment to compassionate conservatism and strong bipartisan leadership, McClellan served the president for more than seven years and witnessed day-to-day exactly how the presidency veered of course. Um, and I think we've all seen him, actually. I think he's probably one of the more recognisable faces in the entire world, um, doing as he did his, his, his daily press conferences in front of the world's media. Uh, New York Times today, um, slightly cynical piece, actually, by Clyde Haberman, saying another book deal loosens another tongue. Um, and Clyde says, I don't know if Clyde's a, a man or a woman, actually, so Clyde says, invariably books of this type are labelled, quote, tell all, but tell when, says Clyde, is more the issue. Americans have put up with a long string of government officials. Uh, George J. Tenet, the former director of Central Intelligence, ran through the same routine a year ago. Who forgot that they were but temporary custodians of vital information? Its true owner was the public. Uh, They stayed silent about what they knew or perceived when they might have conceivably made a difference in policy had only they spoken up in a timely fashion. Instead, what unsealed their lips were book deals. That, too, is part of the New York tradition. Mr McClellan, uh, says Clyde, who left the White House in the spring of 2006 after three years as press secretary, um, although the press release says seven years, of course, but perhaps he wasn't press secretary for the whole uh, seven years, says in his book that the president relied on, quote, propaganda to sell the war in Iraq, that the invasion was a, quote, strategic blunder, that Mr. Bush convinces himself to believe what suits his needs at the moment, and that news organisations were too soft on the administration in the pre-war build-up. Not at all... Um, Sorry, just quite skipping to the end of the article here. He had a, quote, loyalty to the truth, said Mr. McClellan, as well as a loyalty to the values I was raised on. They include the nobility of public service and the importance of speaking up and talking about making a positive difference. He added, I think people that read it, that's the book, will see it for what it is. And Clyde ends the uh, rather cynical piece saying, yeah, they they just might. So, Donna, are you cynical about this as a money-making exercise or do you think it's a a valuable sort of uh, blow for democracy. Well, wouldn't it be great if he'd have told us all of this during one of his press conferences? I mean, yes. he'd have just thrown down the the the, the line of BS that, that was on the sheet yeah. of papers that they handed him and said, you know what? I'm not going to say this crap. They're lying to you. Please don't get into this war. Please tell everyone that they're lying to you about the war because thousands of people are going to die. But do you but think it would, do, would it make, would it really have made a difference? I mean, he, you he know, been arrested. He, he would have been go to Guantanamo Bay. Do not pass go. The, the White House press room would have been the world's safest place for him to make such an announcement. Everyone would have published it and it he could have stopped a war but he waited and now he's cynically saying afterwards well i could have told you then but i've just now got my conscience well i'm sorry but i don't want to buy his book and i don't want to pay him a dime for something i already knew was going on um it's ironic that they're saying the same things about him that he himself said about richard clark when richard mm. clark turned on the yeah. administration that's a very good point actually yes 
Um, of course, on, on this side of the Atlantic, I mean, I think, you know, and, and someone can, can oh, I don't care, I'm going to reveal my biases and prejudices here. Who, I mean, you know, there's a, everyone's got a, got a view and entitled to it. I mean, I think in, in many ways we were more culpable than... Um, than uh, than President Bush because uh, yeah I, I do I, yeah. I I think I think Blair was just uh, what don't I mention the wars as Jack Skinner I just I just I just don't get you know the mess that we're in because they yeah. decided that they wanted more oil and it's made no because we difference. we haven't even had a book like this yet have we in in, in yeah. this country. We jolly well ought to have had one, I think. Yeah, everyone's scared, aren't they? I mean, there's, and who do you, who do you think will will publish it? I mean, who's the author of it? Who would make us all sit up? Who and would do it? it? Yeah, I wonder who would be the person that we'd say, okay, now I want to read this. Well, he'd pro- probably end up with his, his throat cut. Well, he'd end up in yeah. the field having supposedly committed suicide, wouldn't he? Quite, quite. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. don't. And the only good thing, just to, to carry on with this uh, a little bit, just a little sidetrack, was Cherie Blair has only sold 5,000 copies of her book. Ah, oh, now that's very interesting. I didn't know that. Is that the case? Where, yes, where, where, did, you, where did you see that? I saw that on the uh, Times because mm. they compared it with Alistair Campbell, which is a great comparison, who sold 25,000 in his first week. Mm. And even though she's, you know, that everybody's up against the BBC for, for promoting her book, for promoting this, that and the other, and, mm. you know, none of us want to read it anyway, and it's proved it. She's only sold 5,000 copies. Mm. Gosh. Wow. And, yeah, that's not good. So I, I'm interested. Yes, I'd love to read everything about the, uh, the build-up to the Iraqi war by somebody I'd trust. Yeah. In the well, yeah, but let me let me speak up for Scott McClellan, who I think has been, um, you know, to some extent savaged here. Because I mean, the first thing you'd you'd, you'd you'd attack him for, of course, would be making money out of it. I suppose he'll make a bit yeah. of money. Um, the publisher is is a medium sized publisher. I've got an idea of the sort of advance he'd have earned, but it, it, won't, it won't be enough to retire on. I don't think. Um, I mean, you know, this is this is this is what publishing is all about, isn't it? I mean, he couldn't have done it any other way. He'd have gone on sixty minutes and it'd been a, a sensation for a day or two, then everybody would have forgotten about it. He could have done a big newspaper piece, and again, it would be uh, tomorrow's chip shop wrappings. But this is really, this goes to the heart of what non-fiction publishing, I think, should be all about, and, uh, you know, and, and more strength to them. But what, what difference will it make? I mean, ultimately, you know, still at least half the uh, population of America are going to vote Republican, knowing how corrupt and, you know, awful they are. I mean, yes, okay, they're not all corrupt. But when, when you look at um, the, the recent state of movies about the issues, like um, the Robert yeah. Redford Lions for Lambs and the um, yeah. Tom Hanks, um, Charlie Watts-His-Face's War, um, yeah. uh, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones in the Valley of Ella, uh, they're all uh, about the kind of the corruption going on behind the scenes. And, you know, we all know what Watergate was about, and it makes bugger all difference because uh, Joe Public isn't directly affected by it and Joe Public isn't going to make a stand and say you know what, Bush is a corrupt bastard I'm not going to vote for him or any of his kind, I'm going to vote for Barack or I'm going to vote for Hillary, you know, not everybody's going to do that because there's, there's but at, least, at least films like that have come out I mean, uh, you know, that, that, that gives me some faith in the American system actually, I mean we, you know what, what do we have over in the UK? We have, we have John Prescott's eating disorder, don't we? We do, yes. <laughs> which, which, like we couldn't spot that one a mile off, you know. John, you eat a lot when you're depressed or worried? Good God. 
there's a shock. No, I, I think these books sell because um, what people love more than anything else, irrespective of the issues or the corruption or whatever, is to know that the politicians are as morally challenged and up for a quick buck as the rest of us. They're not special yeah. and they're not different and they, take, they fall and they make stupid mistakes and we love to see that revealed in public. More than anything else, we like to see that these people are fallible and just like us. And I think that's at the root of why these things are so hugely popular. And it's the, the thing about the war and us, of course, is the fact that we, Bush may have had it, whatever his reasons were, but we ended it purely through moral cowardice. We didn't have the balls to turn around and say, no, we don't agree with you, we're not going to join you. It was just pure, unadulterated cowardice. And that's probably why the Cherie Blair book isn't selling because also you know the money that was made out of the whole um asylum thing through her being in charge of the the review courts for all that sort of thing how much money she made as a barrister because she was put in charge of the system that her husband put in place to check whether people could stay in the country or not it doesn't even bear thinking about spent as a nine bob note as you say well, it was very nice uh, doing the Lutopia After Dark podcast. Obviously, we won't be able to do any more now since we'll all be uh, uh, behind bars <laughs> and maximum security and uh, our, all our assets seized straight away. Um, are we going to be in Guantanamo Bay? Are we going to be in Guantanamo? I like the colour of the uniforms. We'll I was going to say, right the, the orange will go with your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the, other big, uh, the other big book out, out this week uh, in the UK is the... the Latest to James Bond. Huge amount of fuss over it. Very interesting piece in The Independent last Sunday, talking about um, not that that particular book, but um, another book um, that there's been a bit of a kerfuffle over. Just sort of quote from a little bit of it here. It says, Len, Len Dayton is, a, is, is another author, still alive, who wrote the foreword um, to a book about Ian Fleming. And... Andrew Johnson in The Independent says, Dayton, most famous for the Ipcras file, which of course was, was a big seller some years ago now, my guess would be probably in the early 70s, writes, how Ian Fleming would have hated to know that this book, that's the book about his life, had been censored. As a gentleman, he would have felt that harassing a fellow author to be the ultimate demonstration of bad taste. The Battle for Bond is the name of the book, published by the small imprint Tomahawk. Uh, I haven't heard of them, actually. Uh, it tells the story of how, in 1959, Fleming worked with two screenwriters called Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham on an original film script based on the Bond character. When the plan came to nothing, Fleming took the scripts they'd worked on and used them as the basis for his Bond novel Thunderball in 1961. McClory and Whittingham sued successfully and won the film rights for the novel. Since then, James Bond films have been a separate enterprise, quite interesting, to the novels. And Ian Fleming Publications, run by the surviving members of Fleming's family, has no control or copyright of the movies. Wow. Um, the first copies of The Battle for Bond contain reprinted court documents, apparently, which the Fleming family will trust said infringe their copyright. Tom Hawke claimed they were public documents, but was forced to pulp the first edition of it. Family members are on the board of Ian Fleming Publications, which looks after the Fleming Literary Estate and licenses Bond books, such as Charlie Higson's Young Bond series and the Money Penny Diaries by Samantha Weinberg. And according to the Sunday Times Rich List, the Fleming family is worth around £1.9 billion. Uh, a spokesman for the family said it's not a matter of censorship, it was a clear breach of copyright, which, of course, is completely unacceptable. So we've got this thing that's that's um that's come out lots and lots of media attention uh, the uh, minister of defense have given it lots of um uh, help and coverage they've lent some commandos to uh, stand in for photo opportunities and so on um 
the fact is, though, that um, I'm just quoting uh, from Wikipedia. It's got a wonderful, uh, wonderfully long piece about the whole James Bond thing, if you're interested. After Fleming's death, says Wikipedia in 64, and the posthumous publication of some remnant works by Fleming over the next few years, other authors were commissioned to write continuation novels, which were issued sporadically in the late 60s and 70s, then regularly between 1981 and 2002, at which point the series was put on hiatus. And I sort of scratching my head, really, to see if I could remember any of these books at all. 1982 for Special Services, 1983 Icebreaker, 1987 No Deals, Mr. Bond. It's a sort of lead, lead balloon title, isn't it? 1989 Win, Lose or Die. Um, <laughs> 1992 Death is Forever. Oh, dear. Uh, 1993 Never Send Flowers. And those were the titles of some of these sort of continuation books. Bond or Bust. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. It could have been. <laughs> there wasn't one. There wasn't one in 85. Oh, dear. Um, so here we are, you know, it's sort of getting... It's, it feels a bit geriatric, doesn't it? The Scotsman printed a hundred things you didn't know about Ian Fleming. Someone spent hours compiling all this stuff, probably in a, in a PR agency. And I've got to say, most of it's not very interesting. Um, Santos Fleming was indeed ensnared by ladies. He caught an STI. Uh, Sexually transmitted. What's the I stand for? Infection. Infection. STD from a prostitute and was withdrawn from the college and sent to finishing school in Austria. <laughs> for a withdrawal. <laughs> oh dear. He's, Sorry. He said he wanted 007 to have the dullest, plainest sounding name I could find. Brief and romantic Anglo-Saxon, yet very masculine. Ah, skip over a lot of these. Number thirty-five. Um, he's got a, a, a nice book collection now residing at Indiana University, including papers by Einstein, the first printing of the Communist Manifesto. He had affairs with many women, including the wives of close friends. His wife, Anne, for her part, had an affair with Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the Labour Party. Um, point 40, he liked to beat Anne, and she liked him, beating her. Quote, it's very lonely not to be beaten, and shouted out every five minutes. She once wrote to him in 1948. About, huh? Are we talking about Ian Fleming or V.S. No, I'm talking about Ian Fleming. Strange similarities. I must be perverse and masochistic, she says, to want you to whip me and contradict me, particularly as you're always wrong about everything. Um, he was caustic about tasteless dresses. You're not reading from the Cherie Blair. Um. <laughs> no, I, I can understand how you get confused. <laughs> uh, he was very caustic about uh, bad uh, tasteless dresses, bad manners, and homosexuals. Even though he was close friends with two gay men, Noel Coward and William Plomer, he also became a friend of Somerset Maugham, also gay, whose lavish lifestyle he admired. Um, he gave Bond a taste of vodka martinis um, because... And then... Yes, well, one wonders, you know, uh, because he, Bond is basically a hard liquor man, not a wine snob. Uh, Bond books didn't catch on in the US until President Kennedy uh, said that From Russia with Love was one of his favourite books. Bond frequently uses a Beretta, regarded by some as a lady's gun. Uh, according to his biographer, Andrew Lysett, he proposed that the Isle of Wight be turned into a vast pleasure zone with casinos and brothels. That's point eighty two, point ninety five. Penguin is publishing new hardback editions of the 14 Bond books. Uh, none of the other points I thought were terrible, terribly interesting. Um, is this going to rock our world, Carolyn? No, <laughs> she's died. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm, to death. <laughs> I'm, I'm so in love with the old Bonds. I mean, I love the new movies. They're quite separate enterprises, apparently. They are, and I'm fascinated by that. I did not know any of that. Um, I didn't know the fact that he was from the banking family. I've, I've lost a lot of this um, somewhere in the history. And this is all part of my childhood, you know, being a, a 
kid in the yeah. 60s and going to see from Russia with Love. I didn't know any of this. And I'm, I'm fascinated that they're different, but I don't think anybody ever wrote stuff like he did. I, I was very interested in the last Bond movie. I thought it was extraordinary, and I'm really looking forward to the next one because it's much... Sorry? It's out end of October. I can't wait. And without Amy Winehouse's music, sadly. But uh, it's, I'm, I'm fascinated that the, the two things were, the, were um, divided and have been for years and did not know that. I mean, no wonder we got all those rumours about him and Sean Connery and he didn't want him and he was... No, he didn't, apparently, he didn't. Glaswegian yeah, bruiser. Yeah. I, I remember all that and the fact that he'd been in South Pacific and he had all those tattoos and he thought he was a bit of an oaf and he, was, he said, you know, he wasn't going to look well in the suits and there's some story about Connery having to wear a suit for his first interview and Connery just saying, you know, it doesn't fit him, he's never worn a suit before. So you can see why they were, you know, it was probably just as well they parted company. Just interested that they, they would insist on pulping that first edition. I mean, who'd care? I mean, what on earth was in there? Yeah. Sorry, Donna, you're going to be queuing up for Devil May Care? Oh, yeah. I love the Bond movies. Um, I, I uh, well, the, the, the book, the book, I, you know, I'm not going to buy the the book about the Bond uh, lawsuit, but I I definitely like the Bond. No, this this no this is this is actually this is the the very latest James Bond book. I should have explained that and oh, more, more clearly. Oh, this is the oh this is the one. Okay, so there's two books. There's the one about the lawsuit, and then there's the one that the guy wrote in six weeks. Right? He wrote Sebastian it in six weeks. Yes, that's the one. It's, and it's called yeah. Devil May Care. So I don't know. I've, uh, I, I might uh, be interested in getting it from the library just to see what a book that was written in six weeks mm. looks like, but um, <laughs> I can't imagine that it's a, a great piece of art. Um, I'll have to wait for the yeah. movie, I guess. So, uh, Dave, uh, vodka martinis? Oh, no, Bond balls the arse off me. I just <laughs> do not understand the appeal at all. <laughs> I saw Diamonds Are Forever at the cinema when I was about, I don't know, eight, and that was all right, but the spectacle, the... Pointlessness of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Cheeky <laughs> monkey. Um, no, it's, it, it just, I, I just don't understand the appeal. I just do not get it. It just seems yeah. the most bland, well, there, there lowest two things. There, claptrap to me. Yeah, there are two things, though, aren't there? I mean, this is fascinating, really, how these two things diverge because of this the seminal court case. And there are t- I mean, it's just like, you know, Donna will go and see the next film. Would she buy the book? No. Um, it's almost like we're dealing with two different products here under sort of a, an umbrella. It's like sort of Coke and New Coke or, or something. Very, very interesting. Well, I, I think I think that's largely because the movies you you go and watch them because they're they're pulpy and not necessarily the the latest ones. You know the the um, the revision. Uh, certainly, as we were getting through Dalton and um, Brosnan, they they became very droll. You know, you, you lose any sense of care because Bond isn't going to get it and his main squeeze isn't going to get it because they're needed for the final reel. Uh, and, mm. and the films, they just ended up going through this whole rigmarole of, well, here's a scrape for Bond and he gets out of it. There's no real difficulties for anyone. and that you, you just don't feel any tension. And, and why would you then go back? back to, to looking at, at the books or following the books when they're not by the original author and they're just going to what, what are you going to learn from them? Nothing. Mm. Nothing that you can't learn from anywhere else. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll go and watch the new movie because it'll be two hours of fun and 
mindless fun. Mind, mindless fun. And that's, uh, that's all right sometimes on a Friday night. Um, yeah, but you, you yeah. don't want that from a book. Necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Fruit Loop says. Fruit Loop says. Must admit, I've seen them all. Jezebel says. Bond snore. Uh, if, you, if you've got, um, if you're listening to the podcast and you've got views either way, either about about the book, Devil May Care, tell us what it's like, please. Uh, go to our webpage, podcast.litopia.com, and find out how to leave us a short and sharp message. Don't make it any more than a minute or so, because the uh, Litopia Daily podcast is only going to be five, six, seven minutes, so you don't have to occupy the entire thing. Um, I don't know about vodka martinis. This is the, this is the, this is the one thing that really sticks in my craw about James Bond, actually, because vodka martinis are never that great. You know, you can I, I, on a sort of scale from one to ten, the best vodka martini will probably be a nine out of ten, and the worst one will probably be a seven. So you don't have much variety there. Maybe, but when you use gin, maybe it's just to, to get the last the, the taste of the last woman he had uh, out of his mouth. <laughs> oh, purely medicinal purposes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. oh well. Oh dearie me. You wonder what his his SDD clinic bill must be enormous, <laughs> mustn't it? You can just imagine either that or he's got condoms like elephant hide, you know. <laughs> well, because his life was very similar to to his um, fictional protagonists in in many ways, because he did die very young. I think he was only what fifty six or something like that. That's so not maybe young. Thirties, young. Richard, what? take it from me. It's young. <laughs> <laughs> really young. Really, really young. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think I think we've just about done our um, James Bond theme to death there. Um, before we close tonight, however, I think I, I should uh, resume the uh, the big question that I asked at the uh, uh, the outset of this um, podcast. Nothing to do with my chewing gum, sadly. Possibly um, uh, Britney Spears' chewing gum is worth a lot more than I'm worth. But um, uh, let's let's take your closing bid, shall we? Um, Donna, any any advance on uh, your previous offer? I don't know. Do you do housework? Wow. <laughs> I've got to be honest, haven't I? Otherwise, if I'm not honest, you see, then it's a question of Trey's descriptions, isn't it? And I could be sued for that. I, I think I could learn. It involves dishes and things, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I could learn, well, yes. Then I, I, then I think I'll add a, a case of chocolate beer to the two cases of rosemary mm. ale and the lifetime subscription. Nah, the sorry, that's just, just completely turned me off. The idea of chocolate, chocolate beer, sorry, no. You no, have not to at all. try it. It's delicious, at least as my no. friend Randy makes no, you're, you're out of bidding now. Carolyn, any, any advance? Yeah, get up off my arse and send you my new proposal and take you for lunch and mm. yeah. probably get you a new fish tank. Oh, that's good. Yeah, definitely. Richard, any um, advance on last bid? Yeah, I, I, I'm prepared to pay you in all my cinema tickets, including my very rare <laughs> from the Slough Gallery of Cinemas in 25th of November 1989, the Back to the Future 2 voucher, and also from 1994, <laughs> one for Forrest Gump in Heidelberg, Germany. <laughs> You should have raised all this on our geek issue, actually. <laughs> I don't I know. It's, I can see the attraction from your point of view, from mine. It doesn't go any at all. Dave, are you, well, are you going to well, tickle my fancy with something? Yeah, well, my, mine's got two parts. The first is my original 1977 Star Wars cinema programme, which might oh. be worth a few, Bob. It's mine. Oh. Might be. <laughs> Suddenly Rick's appears at my window with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing, given kind of the whole Litopia After Dark, Litopia Daily, and the way you're taking yeah. over the world, I think we need to move you out of a hobbit <laughs> hole and into um, Isengard or possibly Baradur instead. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, all right, done. I'm Dave's. What? 
it's rather exciting, isn't it? Normally you'd get into trouble if you were caught rifling through somebody's inbox, but with the Latopia's open inbox, we positively encourage you to nose around. There's a big link to it on our podcast homepage, podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, it's just podcast.litopia.com. And for those of you sitting at your desks right now, you can go straight to our open inbox by typing drop, that's D-R-O-P, dot I-O, slash Litopia, into your browser. The next thing I hope you'll do is to put something into the inbox. For example, uh, you might want to send us a note about your new book that's coming out, or send us a press release. Or you might want to record a phone message to give a, a comment on yesterday's show. Yep, the inbox will take phone calls. Or maybe you'd like to upload a file of some kind, uh, perhaps an audio file for possible inclusion in Litopia Daily. Simple instructions are fully given on the page. It really is very easy. We welcome your contribution. Litopia Daily is a pioneering new show, just as Litopia After Dark was six months ago. And just like Litopia After Dark, we'll probably be in public beta or uh, beta for quite a few weeks until the format settles down and we've got the wrinkles nicely ironed out. So we do ask all our friends out there to bear with us a bit while we work out all the issues that are bound to surface in the next few weeks. We really do want Litopia Daily to become an important part of your writing life on the internet. And we hope that you will become an active part of this very exciting new venture. Here's wishing us all luck and lots of fun over the weeks and months ahead. Je vois la vie rose Il me dit des mots d'amour Les mots de tous les jours Et ça me fait quelque chose Il est entre dans mon cœur Il n'est pas du bonheur Dont je connais la cause 